I agree um, wholeheartedly with what you just said. And I feel as if we as a community, as a society, we are, you know, many, many of us enjoy, and that's an awful word to say, but we enjoy watching true crime. I think that if we can, that's fine. We, because we need people to enjoy watching it so that they are exposed. And so information is then given to them. And if there is some, you know, somebody who has a tip or some information, then it can be shared. So it's not a bad thing to enjoy it, but there is a second step. And that is a call to action. If you see a case on a show that you're watching, you know, you can help by sharing that case. You can help by talking about that case. You can help by being an advocate for that story. I feel like the many families that I have met, they are afraid that their loved ones will fall off the internet. They are afraid that they will be forgotten. They don't know how to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I think that every single one of us who, you know, is at all interested in true crime has the ability to make sure that doesn't happen. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Dana Pohl, the creator and host of the True Crime PI Podcast. Dana has been researching the missing and unidentified for more than 20 years. On Dana's podcast, she tells the stories of the missing and unidentified with empathy and respect. In her episodes, Dana explores the lives of the missing and unidentified through the lens of law enforcement, family members, and experts in forensics and genetic genealogy. Dana says her goal is to help find the missing and give the identified back their names and to provide answers to families who've been forced to carry what Dana calls the unbearable burden of not knowing. Dana's undergraduate degree is in journalism and communications and her master's degree is in library and information sciences. But the roots of her work on some of these difficult cases goes back to her childhood during the Missing Children milk carton campaigns, where advertisements on milk cartons in the United States were used to publicize cases of missing children. On a panel of podcasters we were both on in December of 2023, Dana said, it goes back to being a child during the milk carton missing campaigns. Every morning, I would sit with my cereal and I would sit and read the milk carton And it just shocked me that children would go missing. It shocked me that families would not know where their children are. In 2005, Dana began researching missing persons and unidentified persons cases. When the U.S. Department of Justice's National Institute of Justice partnered with the University of North Texas Health Science Center to bring the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, also known as NamUs, online. Dana began utilizing it to connect unidentified remains with missing persons cases. She also discovered and began working with the Doe Network, a nonprofit whose volunteers work with law enforcement to connect missing persons cases with John and Jane Doe cases. 
The unidentified are a rare breed that don't always make the front page. They do not always get the attention from law enforcement that murders do, or even traditional missing persons cases. They often become lost in the cracks. An avid mystery reader, Dana began making comparisons between the missing and unidentified cases. In 2018, Dana moved to Georgia and began looking into cases there. Right around the same time, the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program connected a series of cases to a prolific serial killer named Samuel Little. Samuel Little claimed he had killed at least 99 victims. Dana noticed a red-headed woman whose appearance in one of Little's sketches appeared to be similar to the skeletal remains and clothing found near Nicholas Drive in Marbleton, a city in Cobb County, Georgia. At first, Dana wrote a blog post about the case. That blog post went viral, and then she decided she had to do more. That led to Dana's podcast, True Crime P.I., where she says she initially only planned to do one episode. It turned into a seven-part series where Dana collaborated with cold case investigators from the area, and that investigator had also concluded that Little was the most likely suspect. Today, we're going to talk about what shaped Dana into who she is, what put her on this quest to help bring names to unidentified people, and about the beauty of having the opportunity, whether you're in the true crime community or not, to help lessen the unnecessary suffering of so many families. Thank you for joining me today. I just wanted to, you know, mention that it was so much fun to meet you. God bless Jason Ursi for bringing us all together for that panel um, in Atlanta where we talked about, you know, the motivations of true crime um, podcasters. And when you were talking on that panel, you brought up the Cobb County Jane Doe case that worked for you uh, or that you had um, covered on your podcast. And, you know, I had grown up in Marietta, Georgia. It was probably when I was a kid, it was like one of the longest stretches of um, being in one place because we had moved from different places to different places. And I had vaguely recalled the case because I was there in the 80s reading it. And I don't know if it was in the Land Journal Constitution or wherever, but I, I'm reading about um the missing persons case. And I had completely blanked on it. I had forgotten over all these years. I hadn't really thought about it. And so it was really interesting for me as somebody who caught a snippet of this case very on early on when I was a kid to imagine somebody still working on it today. So, and then I think all the other things that you talked about, you know, I really thought that we spend a lot of time focusing on murders and even people that are known to be missing. But I don't think we spend a lot of time on all those uh, people who are unidentified. And so I thought that was all very powerful. So I'm excited to have you on today. Thank you, Jason. I'm really excited to be here. And yes, we have to do a shout out to Jason for bringing us together for the Atlanta podcast meetup. It was a, a lot of fun. And I got to meet uh, several people in person that I had never met before. So um, hoping to do that again, but super excited to be here today. 
yeah, we're thinking about another one for next year. So <laughs> fingers crossed or maybe <laughs> another couple. And, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we were talking about before we started recording was, um, you know, so it was a little bit about like family. And I, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about, you know, what kind of shaped you into the person that I met uh, that day in Atlanta? I'm just just curious about what motivated you and what drove you. I have to say that growing up in a nuclear family was a huge part of my upbringing. It was a huge part of who I am today. I uh, my grandparents lived about 20 minutes away from where we lived. And we would, I would talk to them every day. My mother would talk to her mother or father every day. Uh, We would, as children, my parents loved to dance. And so they still love to dance, but um, they, you know, they would take disco lessons and then they would go out to dance on the weekends and we would stay at my grandparents' house. So from being very small, you know, young, maybe, you know, I can remember being there four or five, six, whatever, um, staying at my grandparents' house on Friday night, maybe staying there Saturday because my mom would probably come over and go to the store with my grandmother or, or, you know, grocery shopping or whatever. So we were kind of, we would, we had our weekend grandparents trip. Um, and then on Sundays, we would have our family dinner. So we have, I have an Italian, you know, I'm Italian. We have Sunday dinners and my grandmother would wake up at 5 a.m. And I remember waking up and just smelling the sauce cooking because she would start the sauce at at 5 a.m. And she would make a feast. Like when I first met my um, husband, I said, you know, do you want to come over for sauce? And (laughs) he was like, oh, okay, sauce. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he got there and he's like, there was chicken, there was salad, there was all, you know, three meats in the sauce, the meatballs, the pork, the rolled steak. And like, it just goes on, you know, the pasta, um, you know, a salad or broccoli and all, all kinds of different things. So that's what my grandmother did every Sunday, not to mention she made a homemade dessert. And so we just, you know, we would gather around that table. It was made with love. I mean, you could feel the love. Um, That's what I always think when I hear stories like that, you know, the person getting up early in the morning to make something like the sauce, I'm like, that is love. That is like labor of love. It is. And I that has been passed down to me. I say oh, often to my husband, you know, this is how I show you I love you. I cook you dinners. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm always worried, like I think about your health and I, I want to make things that, you know, will be good for you. So it, I, I really do express love through food. I do the same when my children come to visit, they know they're going to be fed because that's just um, who we are, you know, it, it, and it's not that it revolves around food in a way that is um, not like we want to eat a lot, but we want to show like we want to sit down at the table, have a conversation, enjoy good food. Yeah, spend the time together, give the gift to each other. I imagine having such a strong nuclear and extended family, I imagine like the prospect of there being an empty seat at that table 
must be a strange one when you're thinking about families and people who might might be missing. You know, because I was thinking about that over the holidays with um, with my mom's loss and you know, the empty seat that we had at the table, you know, like, and we never have enough time with people. There's no, <laughs> there's no version of having enough time with people. But for, with my mother, we had time to prepare. We had years to prepare for her um, empty seat at the table and sort of her unfinished song. And I just think about the kinds of cases that you pursue and, like as you tell that story, just thinking about the idea of what if too soon or unexpectedly there had been a missing seat at that table? It is, I think, one of the, I mean, I, so when someone dies suddenly or disappears, it is a totally different experience than when you have time to prepare. So like you said, you had time to prepare with your mother. I had time to prepare with my grandmother, um, but I had an uncle who passed very quickly, um, you know, just suddenly. And that was so difficult just to have somebody be gone where you have no time to say, okay, they're not well, they're suffering. I don't want to see them suffer anymore. You know, you you move through the phases of justification. Uh, you start out with a lot of hope, maybe, and then you get to the point where, well, this isn't looking as good as I, you know, wish it were. And then you start to say, okay, I'm going to need to accept this. And if they're not going to ever be back to who they were before, then I need to let go. You have all of that time to do that. When someone dies suddenly, you do not have that you're time. Missing, you're missing some of the, the information that we use to help ourselves mourn. Yes. And so it is, you know, it is, it, I think when someone goes missing and you have no, it's if someone dies from a heart attack, let's say, you can say, okay, that happened suddenly and I know what happened and I, I think you can start your healing. If someone disappears or goes missing um, or is murdered and there's no explanations, you know, no reasons, nothing that you can logically, you know, start to process, I think it is what I call carrying the burden of not knowing. Like what happened and how do you deal with that day in and day out? And some of these families are doing it for 40, 50, 60 years. I can't imagine that. Why do you think it's important for us as people to know? I think that it's important to know because you can do what we do when we know someone isn't well. So we can work our, work through that process. We can say to ourselves, Okay, you know, if we find out that this uh, our loved one went missing or was murdered, and then we find we get the answers we need, like what happened. So, you know, they were it was you know a, whatever the situation was. So, if it was a missing person, you that you might be able to say, okay, I see they traveled to this space, and you know there was a accident um, or whatever, whatever explanation you, know you can the, have for it. You know the end. You have this. Yes, I guess you can. Yes, yes. 
I don't like to say closure, but yeah. I mean, you just know the circumstances surrounding the death, just like you would if someone was ill. You know the circumstances of their death. Without knowing where they just disappear into thin air and you're like, what Where? What happened? For me, that is like, there are people who might be able to work that through, you know, it is, they disappeared and, and, you know, I, it would eat me alive, literally. I don't know. I would be searching every day. It, I would need a heck of a lot of counseling, I think, to um, be able to just function in that type of situation. Just because I, I am a librarian. I believe in freedom of information. I think people should know things and be yes. told things. And, yes. And so the truth is really, really important to me. And yeah. Yeah. I was talking to a um, uncle, uh, a 24-year-old woman who went missing, I think it's 18 years ago. And he said this very, for me, poignant thing. He said that you don't know whether to carry them in your heart or whether they're still out there. And he told me the story of another relative dying you know, where they had time. And he said that they said to the relative as they were passing away, please go up to heaven and look for her there. Mm -hmm. We'll look for her here and you look for her there. And I just found that so powerful that they don't know where to look, you know? Yeah. I, I have come to this thought and I don't have a missing loved one. So I feel as if I don't know enough to believe that this is 100% correct. But I do think, you know, it strikes me sometimes when I, I am a person of faith. And so it strikes me when people will say, you know, th- she, her mother passed away and she never knew. I think the suffering of not knowing ends when you are no longer on this earth. It's the living here Mm. is when you're suffering with the, you know, you're carrying the burden of not knowing. Um, But when you pass, I believe, you know. And um, I find, you know, I, I don't, it can lessen the suffering for people here. Yes. Yes. I, I, I feel that, you know, that always strikes me as interesting because we all have our beliefs and, and you know, whatever you believe or I believe. But I, I firmly kind of, I, I guess maybe I make myself, like you said, I lessen my, the pain of me thinking, like, I don't want to think that way. I want to think that once if this person, you know, was murdered or this person was went missing and the I, you know, it's been 40 years and and the assumption is that that person is no longer living, I think that the answers will become known once you leave this earth. I remember on the panel you mentioned this. You you had said that back in 1996 when um and you had also talked about like reading mysteries, reading detective books, but you said back in 1996 when John Benet Ramsey um, died, you were having your first child that very same year. And, you know, when she went m- missing, 
I can only imagine what it must have felt like for a parent in that situation to lose their child. But you used this word that I thought was interesting. You said it was overwhelming for you. And like often when I'm thinking about stories, I'm thinking about the family, the neighbors, the friends, but I'm not thinking about the broader effect of hearing those stories for just the broader public. What did you mean by that when you said it was overwhelming? So interestingly enough, um, I had my son Jesse in August of 96. In the, in the fall of that year, there was a young man, local young man, who had gone missing. So the news, local news, was covering that over and over and over again. Um, they were searching for him for several months. He, uh, his parents were speaking on the news. They had gone to nationwide shows like Sally Jesse Raphael and you know Montel Williams. They were asking for anybody's help. I was watching all of that. And then, so this is a missing, missing person. Then in December, John Bonet's story um, hits the airwaves. And the this was a teenage boy who went missing, uh, maybe a little bit older, had graduated high school, um, who went missing in that situation, I, I have a son and I'm thinking, wow, like that's would be awful. But I'm that's, you know, years from now. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't yeah. have to worry about that for Until years. Later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when that happened to John Bonet in her own home, it just brought it all kind of crashing down that this is never something like you think as a parent, especially when you're holding an infant, um, that, that nothing's going to happen. Like you're going to watch over them and you're going to have control and, and you know. And they're supposed to be there with you forever. They're right. To, like you are supposed to pass with them still being there. Right. And so just those two stories colliding, I think, really brought it home for me that like this is something that you will always think of. This is something that you will I, you know, always be worried about. And and then opening up to the broader, you know, kind of fl flashing back to the missing children on the milk cartons and, you know, to stories about I, people I knew that were never found. I, that's really what kind of sealed the deal for what I, for my, you know, need to kind of do research into these stories. How could I help? I mean, really, I'm driven by how can I help? What can I do? If I can lessen the pain for the family in any way, I would like to do that. It's if I can, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. And I, I, it's it's something just kind of struck me because, you know, as a journalist, I worked with like a lot of news researchers and a couple things about them. They tend to be planners. They tend to really pay attention to the details, and they also get exposed to a lot of. A lot of different things, but a person who goes into like library information science, research, journalism, it's all about knowing, right? It's all yes. about the truth and the importance of having the truth. So it just kind of made sense to me listening to what you were saying. You know, if you were wired that way, wanting to know, wanting to know the answer to the mysteries and wanting to bring that when that collides with altruism. It kind of makes sense to me. 
how you ended up where you did. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think, you know, my choice to study journalism and communications and, you know, to I really just wanted I like to tell stories. I think everybody has a story that is worth listening to, that's worth knowing. I'm super curious about the lives of other people. I learn every time I listen to someone talk about their experiences and I celebrate that. I you know, it's more than celebrating it. It I think it goes back to um in your last podcast there was a mention of kinship and that being a really really important part of just living um and i think that is so true like to me it is we have we when we talk to one another we learn how similar we are hmm. or how different we are but we um learn to be to have, you know, admiration. We admire people when we hear their stories. We, you know, we can learn about a life we didn't live. We can put ourselves in people's shoes. I, you know, it's just, I think that that's why I pursued journalism. And then the uh, the flip, you know, as I move forward, wanting to, technology was really coming into play um, whenever I went to get my master's degree. So, you know, we were using Dow up <laughs> to Dow up into the library, which I thought was the coolest thing. I didn't have to drive down <laughs> into Pittsburgh. <laughs> ring, to go ring, to, yeah. I just, fuzzy sound. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought like, this is amazing, you know? Um, and so look how far we've come. But, but um, just, you know, the idea of having information at my fingertips, teaching other people how to have that. I believe information is freedom and freedom is if someone said to me, what is the one thing that you could not live without? I would say freedom. Freedom is so very important to me in every aspect. I can't, you know, I remember being a child and watching Roots, which I was obsessed with. But the that the point of that show to me was that those people were not free. Like I couldn't, it, as much as I am passionate about the you know, missing and unidentified. I felt that same passion as a kid. And I remember standing in front of the TV and my mom would be like, Dana, you need to go to bed. And I'm like, but mom, I, can I stay till the next commercial? I was <laughs> so wanting, you know, to see that story end with freedom, you know, just because I think everyone deserves freedom. Whatever that means to everyone, that's what mm -hmm. I believe in. Like you should have freedom to live your life without somebody else controlling you. Yeah. And freedom to live without unnecessary suffering, which I think a lot of yes. comes down to, I, you know, so back in 1984, when they discovered the remains of what you named Cobb County, Jane Doe, it was like a guy on the edge of his property. And, you know, I don't remember this as a a kid, all these details, but I've done, you know, some research before that, that would have been eight year old Jason who was attending Soap Creek elementary school. Um, but I was mm -hmm. always like a super avid reader. My parents would get the journal constitution and they would get other papers and I, I would read it front to back. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, ever since I was a yeah little kid, just knowledge has been important to me, but, you know, back in 84, when they found um, the remains of this woman, and it was it was in Mableton, right? So, yes. Yeah, 
you know, they, they, they found skeletal remains and then they also found clothes. And I was just curious, like, and I know technology has completely changed, you know, what, what could they do? What did they do during those, that time um, when it came to trying to get answers? So they did a lot. Um, I think sometimes when we look at these stories, we assume um, because we have all of these questions and no answers that they didn't do what they should have done. And I found out through this investigation that they did as much as they could. So when they first found her, they sent the medical examiner out to the scene. They uh, collected all sorts of evidence from around her. And I mean, just bottles. I mean, she was found in tall grass. Um, They assumed she had been there for at least three months. Uh, It could have been longer. Was it, it was near the Chattahoochee River, or was it on a farm, or where? Where, where it, was it? It actually is was like kind of like just it's it's near the Chattahoochee River, but not like on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. Mm-hmm. So so it was more in in um, like a road off the highway, and yeah, yeah and it was um, just she was in some tall grass that like along the property line of this gentleman who was walking his property and happened to stumble upon her. There was, I believe, a beer can that they collected. Um, There were, you know, just some little items around that. And they don't know if that was there prior or, you know, if that that was associated. She there was a bunch. She had a, a lot of clothing, more clothing than you would think that one person would be wearing was layers of clothing. Huh. So Which she had Georgia isn't particularly normal. Right. So this would have been, if it was three months, I mean, it could have been February, end of January, February, that um if we go by the three month, you know, time frame of when she when she died. So uh she was discovered um in May, but she was probably deceased in January or February. So they took her body to uh, be autopsied and the the remains to be autopsied. And they, the next day went out with metal detectors um, and looked for anything they may have missed along with, if there was a bullet fragment or anything like that, they did not find a bullet fragment. So they're, they were working with, we have no idea how she died. And then the autopsy um, was done and they determined that most likely she had been strangled. Mm, broken bones or something along those lines. That's wild. So th- in three months, we would go from, you know, our our body after death to skeletal remains that quickly? Yeah. So that's what I was interested in. So I, you know, this podcast taught me a lot. Um, and it really depends, obviously, on temperature, humidity, all that, you know, the environment itself. I, there was, there was some skin um, in, in certain spots. So, um, and there's animal activity. So, yeah. So it's not just, all, it's not always just the natural 
decomposition process. It's, you know, hurried along in some cases by animals. Mm. Um, so yes, so she did, she was pretty much skeletal. They knew that she was just for an example, they knew that she was wearing orange. She had orange nail polish. So they were able to still discern that. Um, and she also, they believe was wearing a wig. Um, and they said that this was like a red wig, but for the most part, they had to estimate her. Yeah. The rest of her. Um, and, and I think they did a, you know, it seems like they were pretty sure of her just based on, they had enough bones and, and whatever the formula is, they were able to figure out that she was, you know, probably between five foot and five foot four and, uh, weighed, you know, somewhere between i think 110 and 120 and so she was just you know she was just a petite girl she was wearing clothes that were uh she had a big corduroy jacket on and the corduroy jacket was like a man's extra large yeah and so i went through and tried on my husband's coat because i'm about her size and so I put on my husband's coat and I was like, could she have worn this as an accessory? Like, could she have worn it like it was stylish? And I put it on and, and I rolled up the cuffs on the sleeves and I, you know, checked it out. And I do think, you know, it's possible. In the she 1980s, have... all things yeah. possible. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I remember having the big shoulder pads and all that sort of thing. So yeah, it could have Cindy been. Cindy Lauper days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, so they did all of that and, you know, they did even more over throughout the years. Uh, the one thing that really caught me was I did not, you know, you have, you have to zap yourself back to, you know, 1984. So in 1984, we were not using DNA like we are today. You know, it was just coming into being something that everyone knew that, that would be a possibility. And there was a, you know, it had just solved a case in Florida in the United States. So it was just super brand new, you know, not every department was using it, but they collected the evidence. They maintained the evidence in hopes that one day, you know, they might have access to these tests. The one thing though, that really got me was she had medical devices. They were, I did the research to find out like, okay, let's track the serial numbers. There were no serial numbers and the database did not exist until 1993. So there was no, yeah. So there were, so like, I felt like, like, God, we're striking out everywhere we go. You know, we can't do, so we close. don't. Yeah. Yeah. We were, they, the technology just wasn't there yet. And then the last piece of it, piece of the puzzle was that I made the assumption that there was a, a reconstruction done, a clay bust of her done. And I made the assumption that, oh, that was probably, you know, probably took a little while, but they probably did that relatively close to the time that they found her. And then I realized, well, wait, I shouldn't make that assumption. Let me see if I can find this out. So I contacted Kelly Lawson at the GBI. Her mother was Marla Lawson, and she was the first forensic scientist. I mean, forensic, I'm sorry, forensic artist at the GBI. Oh, wow. And she was not hired to come on until 13 years after this doe was found so there yeah so that puts into yes so it puts into perspective that not every agency had access to a forensic artist 
And that's how many years it took for them to do a sketch. So, or a reconstruction. So I realized then, which I was thinking in my head, like, okay, so the police didn't take a photo of her or anything and go, they, they had made the assumption that she was a sex worker. Um, and they, for, and, and they based that on the location where she was found, the way she was dressed, um, you know, the, the situation that occurred, um, they felt that, that, that she most likely was a sex worker. And so I thought, well, they should take a photo. They could have taken a photo down and showed people, you know, like talk to some people that, you know, you know, in those areas and see if anyone recognizes her. And they couldn't do that because there was no sketch. It took 13 years for that reconstruction wow. to be created. Wow. Yeah. Cause I've seen the, the reconstructed head, which yeah, has amazing detail. Um, I was talking to somebody and I can't remember the name of the company, but they were at CrimeCon and they do from DNA alone. They do mm -hmm. these amazing reconstructions of, um, faces. Maybe it was Parabon or something yes. like that. It's yes. amazing how far we've come in our ability to, to, to explore these cases. Yes, it is. It really were, is. Now, were there any clues there in the clothing? Did that, did that help? I know you talk about that a little bit in the podcast, but is that, what were the things that sort of, um, how, where did they leave the investigation before you and others sort of picked it back up? So in 2011, um, the Cobb County Police Department started looking at her cold case. And there was an article in uh, one of the Atlanta newspapers, and it basically said that there were 75 unsolved cases, cold cases in, um, the Cobb, in Cobb County, and she was one of them. And so they talked about how in 2011, they sent her DNA off to, for a profile to be created. And I believe that profile only had 13 markers. And so that, it, that quickly was outdated. Um, by the time I started looking at the case, 13 markers isn't where you want to be and you can't mm. use that for genetic genealogy. So I knew that she was going to have to have another profile created, a SNP profile for them to be able to do genetic genealogy. So and there was enough DNA remaining that they had kept because I'm thinking 1984 they wouldn't have even really there would be no utilization of DNA at that point, right? Right. So I I have been told that you know her remains were still available. So she it was more than just you know that they could they had kept a portion of those remains so that they could do this testing. So yeah. So so that was good to know. Um and I all you know I started this case because I wanted her to get have her name back. Like I the one thing I wanted most was to give her back her name, to let her family know, you know, someone was missing her. She was probably a sister or a cousin or a mother and it was just really it, what drove me was that she deserves to have her name. And so I reached out, I guess, to, I, I had read the article and a Detective Dawes was mentioned in the article. And I thought, well, this, it would be smart of me to talk to a detective who has worked this case. So 
as nervous as I was about doing it, um, I, I looked him up and I saw that he had worked for the Cobb County Cold Case Unit. And um, I found him on Facebook and I just reached out and said, Hi, I, you know, I'm Dana Pohl. I'm doing a podcast. And I was wondering if you would be willing to talk to me about this Cobb County Jane Doe's case. And he wrote back and said he would be happy to. And so that has been the start of a really great friendship. Um, he has taught me so much about uh, cold case investigation and and just, you know, how to look at a case and how to look at a case and not judge the work that has been done without knowing. And so I feel like I did come into this case thinking law enforcement did not do everything they could. And over the years, that case was, her case was looked at multiple times. It's, they our, did. it's our default, right? Like if, yeah. can't, if something isn't solved, I think we naturally assume, and I don't think it just applies to law enforcement. It applies to probably everything that uh, if only someone had made more effort. And I think that's something we do to comfort ourselves a little bit, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry, you were going on. No, no. So, no, that's so true. I mean, when I started talking to Detective Dawes and I, I was like, I spent hours looking for the brand of those jeans she was wearing. And he's like, so did I. I don't know if you're going to find it. <laughs> And so I was like, oh, okay. And then I asked him another question. Well, what about the serial numbers? And he's like, we, you know, there were no serial numbers on there. You know, we, we tried to track those down. We couldn't, um, you know, what about this, you know, gentleman, her, she was wearing a shirt that said George, um, and it was from a, a certain business. So the name of the business and his name was embroidered on the shirt. And so I said, well, what about George? And he's like, well, you know, we looked into him. We re-interviewed him. You know, when in the cold case unit, we actually did contact, you know, did contact him. So they had actually found him at the time. Yes, they found him at the, they found the law enforcement did find him and interview him and they dismissed it. I mean, he had, they said that he had you know, worked there and whenever people didn't work there anymore, they would donate the shirts to Goodwill or, you know, yes. So, um, secondhand stores, whatever. So it, so that was kind of blown, you know? And so everywhere I turned and I remember saying to detective Dawes, Oh my gosh, like I am learning the degree of patience that you must have as a detective, you know, to do the job because it is, around every corner, just everything that we were talking about, he had already faced all of those challenges. He already knew the answer. And he was just, you know, had been looking at this case for way longer than I had. And I was getting frustrated. So it was really enlightening. And this is what I mean. He's taught me a lot. Just listening to him teaches me so much. Um, But what happened, I, I got, I had, you know, when I initially started looking at the case, I wrote the blog post and I, Mm-hmm. After I wrote the blog, whenever I was writing the blog post, so that was had, in, I had believe. you started at that point to think you had made a connection to Samuel Little, the serial killer at that point? So it, it yes. Okay. What happened was in 2019, they released the sketches and I was writing the blog post right around that time. So and the sketches. Sketches that Little had. Did he, did law enforcement ask him to make those or are those just things he had? So in 2019, the Texas Rangers and the FBI released 
sketches that Samuel Little, who was arrested in 2014 and believed to be a the most pro- prolific serial killer in the United States, having confessed to 99 um, murders, wow. he started drawing, he had been drawing sketches. So he said, he told the Texas Rangers that he was an artist, you know, he had this talent. And if they wanted to, if they would give him the materials, he would draw photos of the women, or sketches of the women. So they, he started doing that. And then they, in 2019, they released a bunch of those sketches. And on some of them, there were dates and places. And there was one that stuck out to me. It was a redheaded woman. Um, and she, it said 1983, 1984, and Georgia was written on it. And so I started looking at it. I'm like, wow, uh, this could be, I mean, you know, he's not as, he wasn't the best artist, <laughs> but he was pretty, I mean, he could remember details. And, you know, some of these sketches that I had seen did come very close, you know, where you can make the comparison between the actual victim and his sketch. And so I thought, this is close enough. I'm going to add this to my blog post and I'm going to just put it out there as a, could this be this victim? And that blog post got, you know, like in hours, it got, it went all over the place um, because that's something that I think people get interested in. It's something they can think about. It's something they can analyze. And so it got shared on Facebook numerous times. And so at that point, I was, I thought to myself, see, people are interested in this. They're interested in this, like I'm interested in this. So that's where the idea of doing more and creating the podcast came from. I found those sketches on so many levels so disturbing because it, it kind of, I forget the number he did, but it was like well more than a dozen. And, you know, like some of the faces were stern, some of them were smiling. All of the faces had personality um, to them, but it was every race, um, you know, every hair color, everything you could imagine. The, the one that's really strange is the one that he he did of the, there's a woman with red hair, but her face was blue. But outside yeah. of that, and there's got to be a story behind that one. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, like, I thought, Wow, Samuel Little, a serial killer that we hadn't identified as a serial killer, who was traveling all over the United States, and I think him being black, his race may have played some role in it, but his victims, because you don't fit the stereotype that way, but his victims were all sorts of people all over, and um, it just kind of like break some of those stereotypes, but it's interesting that you were able to just see that picture and then think, wow, this really felt familiar to you. Yes. I think you're so right in, in the only criteria that Samuel Little had was that he could identify them as low hanging fruit, as he called it people that would not be missed. So he looked for women who were either addicted to drugs, who were uh, disabled in some way. So a lot of his victims may have walked with a limp or 
um, you know, just maybe had some um, developmental delays. Um, so he truly was a perpetrator and or, or a predator in the sense that he picked easy victims to kill and ones that he believed a lot of effort wouldn't go into. Yes, his whole idea was that if you choose a sex worker, a um a, a an addicted someone who is addicted to drugs um or someone with, you know, maybe a disability of some sort, they most likely will not be missed as quickly as someone who is you know, has a family that is, you know, that is you know, maybe a professional woman or, you know, somebody, who, whatever it is, something that is not those where working. advocate for yes. where the family would fight hard. Yes. So somebody would immediately be looking for them. His idea was you choose the low hanging fruit, people are not going to be looking for them quickly. So it, get, it would buy him time. Mm. Yeah. That's wild. That's wild. So you made that, you were able to kind of make that connection. The blog post, I'm guessing, unexpectedly for you, went viral. And where did it go from there? So that's whenever I decided that I wanted to pursue the podcast. I wanted to create a podcast. Um, I then, like I said, reached out to as many people as I could. So I talked to Kelly Lawson, which she connected me with her mother, her mother gave me the information about the re- reconstruction. I, you know, did research on DNA. I did research on the um, the medical device databases, and then I reached out to Detective Dawes, and we had our conversations. And I finally got up the nerve to say to him, um, "So I have this idea, and I'm wondering if you know." I felt like I he was going to think I was crazy, and so I just <laughs> said, "Yeah," I was like, "Oh." And, you know, I'm talking to a detective and what, what am you know, here I am. I'm just like a, a librarian, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, to me, it's like, I'm, you know, I'm in awe of the work that he does. And so I, I said, but can I ask you a question? And he said, yes. And I said, do you think there's any way that, you know, th- that she could be a victim of Samuel Little? And he said, the most potential suspect in this case is Samuel Little, which opened up. Yeah, it was crazy. And that opened up the whole idea of him, like he started sharing with me how he had pursued that avenue. How did he you know it was going to be a series? No, I did not. Yeah. yeah. And so he had talked to you. So he had already been on this parallel track pursuing it. He, he was uh, when he was in the cold case unit. So he had done it in 2011 as a detective in the Cobb County police department. And then he started again when he became in 2014, whenever he became the um, kind of the the head of, I guess, the cold case unit that was um, established by the DA in Cobb County. And so he ran that cold case unit until 2019. And then he retired. Okay. So, so it was he, still open when so he literally, left. literally, you're 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 reaching out to him just after he's kind of closed the book on it, and yes, you sort of pulled him back. So I, you see, you guys make this connection at that point. I'm curious whether you, you know, well, eventually you guys get a good idea of who it is, um, who Cobb County Jane Doe is. 
Do you know anything about sort of like the parallel side of it? Like what the family had been going through since 1984? You know, was there a missing persons report? Did they even know she was um, missing? And do we know anything about what she was like at this point? So she has not been officially identified as of yet. Mm -hmm. I, um, was contacted by a cousin of hers and she said that they were doing confirmatory testing. So she, all she knew was that they were asking her to take a DNA test and then they would do the one-to-one comparison with Jane Doe. I have not, it, it has not been released. So as far as I know, we're still in the stage of their confirming or they're not ready to release that information. So I don't know anything other than the fact that it is being, it is being worked on. Um, What I do know is that the podcast resulted in, so I always say the podcast resulted in, and that's not really true. I contacted, so I was listening to the fall line and that is a, an amazing podcast And they did a special like series on Samuel Little. And in that series, I heard a woman speak about the Saki task force and her role in helping to identify. What was that task force? The Saki? Saki task force. It's the sexual assault um, kit. Oh, so going through sexual assault kits. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And this was in Georgia or is it in Georgia? Okay. Yes. So I heard her speaking and I was, I wrote, I remember listening to the podcast and I wasn't nearly finished with my series, but I wrote her name down and thought, I'm going to need this someday. Like I'm going to use this. Um, maybe she can help. And so when I finished the series, I reached out to her and I said, I you know, believe that this doe could be connected to Samuel Little. Not only do I believe it, but Detective John Dawes believes it. Well, she knew Detective Dawes and she said, why does he believe it? And I explained the timeline matched. He had reached out to the Texas Rangers. Um, You know, he believes that the, you know, we believe that the scene is his MO, uh, everything. And I told her about the sketch and I said, she was found in Mableton. And she said, she like paused and she said, he did say something about Mableton. And I just, my mouth dropped because I was just like, you know, like I was literally, I, I talk about it in the podcast, but I was like dancing the jig. You know what I mean? I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. We got it. <laughs> yeah. So um, she said, send me everything you have. And so I did. And a couple of days later, she texted me back and said, we are going to, based on the information you shared, we are going to re-examine this case. Oh, wow. And so that was in 2020. And then, you know, COVID hit and uh, delays happened. And periodically, I try not to be a pain, but like every six months, I'll reach out to Amy and just say, hey, you know, can you tell me what's going on? And I've been as This is one of the things that teaches you patience because I'm not by nature a real patient person, but, but I've been learning. And so I just, she would say, we're still working on it. At that moment, was Samuel Little still alive at that point? 
Yes, he was wow. still alive. But mm-hmm. he probably never knew the name of the victim. Let me think about this. Oh, yes. No, he was not. I'm sorry. So, yeah. So I, I think I have my dates screwed up because I, I released the Oh, no, I did release the first two episodes in 2019. So I do. Okay, so in that December, at the end of December, he died. So, yeah, so he had already passed. And I did do, I put that in the podcast. So I talk about him passing. Um, so back to um, Amy. So every six months, I will reach out to her and I will ask her where we stand um, just recently I did reach out to her and I said, uh, can you give me an update on the task force? And she said, oh yes, hold on. Let me check to see what I'm allowed to release. And so I don't know what that means, you know, but my fingers are crossed that that means something good. And, you know, I, I know that it's this year, if all goes well, Cobb County Jane Doe should be identified. What a fun moment that will be and what a rewarding moment that will be when you get to tell that part of the story. Yes. Yes, I am. You know, I, I, sometimes I'm like, if I'm going on a trip or I'm, you know, I know I'm not going to have a lot of time. I'm like, oh, I, you know, I don't want them to announce it yet. Don't do it right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just want. I want to, and I know I'm not going to have any warning. You know, it's not like they're going to be like, hey, Dana, we, you know, um, we just wanted to let you know. So it'll be, I hear it like everyone else, I'm sure. But, you know, to me, it's it's not, it's just that. I think you're underestimating the grapevine that you might be a part of. (laughs) No. (laughs) You think? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm hoping that, you know, all I care about is that that her family knows her family gets to bring her home if that's what they choose to do and if that's what they want to do. And, um, you know, that that the world gets to know her name, that, uh, you know, she deserves to have her name. And um, if they there's something about that idea that I didn't really get probably until, you know, like when people were during the George Floyd incident, they were saying like, say his name. And it stuck in my head that whole year. And I thought about this with missing persons cases. There's just something about being able to say the person's name and acknowledge them and acknowledge their life and acknowledge their, their suffering and acknowledge, you know, that idea that they are probably, or we hope they're in a better place. That's so powerful. Yes. I I mean, to me, it really is. I, I don't, I can't imagine how the family feels, um, you know, just wondering and, and, you know, generations, like this has been 40 years. So people, you know, pass away, they forget, or there's no one, maybe, you know, if it goes 60 years, are there people alive that still remember them, you know, or, or knew them in life? So to me, it's just, the final gift that you can give to someone is to give them back their name, that they don't mm. remain unidentified on this earth forever. I, I, I think that is just heartbreaking. And it is also, you know, it's heartbreaking for families who are searching or who, who do remember, or even if they don't have never met that person, just want to know that someone they're blood related to has been identified and can be returned to you know, to the family. Yeah. I remember, um, this is like probably 
2004, 2005, something like that. Because I had, um, you know, left the Times at this point, and it had to be 2003, because I remember I was still in Brooklyn, 2003 or early 2004. I read this book um, called uh, Restless Sleep, and it was from the late 1990s or something along the lines, but then it was, I think it was updated, and it was about the New York Police Department Cold Case Squad which I knew nothing about, even though I had covered the police department. I mean, I knew they existed. And one of the things that struck me in it, they had cases from the 80s, cases from the 90s that they were trying to um, capture, but they had a strangling from 1951 Mm. that they were still pursuing. And I just, it was really, really interesting because there's one point in the book where, and I'm, you know, I'm butchering it. It's not exactly right. So I'm just summing up my takeaway from it. And where the detective is asked on this case from 1951, like, you know, this person's family may be, may be gone by now. You know, why are you doing it? And he essentially said, well, because there's no job like mine. I speak for the dead. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was such a powerful way of looking at it because, you know, it makes me look at detectives and police officers because we often kind of beat up on them Um, because, you know, they're in one of those jobs where they can never do enough for us. They can never do it perfect. They can never do it right. But that concept of they do something that no one else does in that they do speak for the dead. They do. And, and they, you know, in my experience, there's a lot of law enforcement who carry these cases with them forever if they go unsolved. Um, I think we need to offer grace um, to, to law enforcement. I think they get into this type of work because for the most part, they want to help people. Uh, they want to it's support people. Right, exactly. And so, you know, I'm not saying that there are times where we, you know, look at a case and we're like, "Mm, that's, that really was just kind of like brushed away. You know, uh, they, it looks like not everything that could have been done was done. I try to reserve that for if I've looked at a case file or, you know, if I actually have evidence in front of me that proves that, because I think that we need to start, just like I say, you know, every missing person case should be looked at as a homicide so that we can every missing person case every you know suspicious death every everything every case should be looked like as a homicide so then moving forward we can we can change those so from worse to better not from better to worse um and that's the same that I think about law enforcement. We start out believing in law enforcement until it's proven otherwise. Otherwise, give them the benefit of the the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, a police officer once told me, like, if people don't give us the benefit of the doubt, and until proven otherwise, it's impossible for us to take the risks and do the things to do our jobs. I'm just curious about one thing. Like, what can we, right, as people who are not law enforcement officers or, you know, or don't necessarily have the research skills that you do, what can we do to help make it so 
more of these names are said? So, you know, I can talk about the benefits of genetic genealogy, uh, forensic genetic genealogy. If you've had a DNA test and, you know, you for through Ancestry or 23andMe and you're interested in sharing that information, helping to solve a cold case um, with just your DNA data, you can download that information and, and upload it into GEDmatch and then opt in so that law enforcement can use that. So genetic genealogists can use that to try to, you know, make a match on an unidentified person or, or try to, um, you know, maybe match uh, your DNA with whether, and, and this is where people get nervous, I think, but the perpetrator side. And it, it you know, it, it might, it doesn't mean it's going to be someone in your immediate family, but could it go back generations? So, mm-hmm. um, so, but I think people get a little like nervous about that. Um, yep. And and that's one way if you really don't, you know, if you want to, to, kind of play a role in solving a cold case. So I could go to like my ancestry profile where I have my DNA and download that, then upload it to Jetmatch and give them permission. Is that the way that it would work? Yes. Okay. Okay. I didn't even know that. Yes. So, so that's a, that's a great way because, um, you know, you literally could make a big difference. You could, your ancestry could solve a cold case. The other way to do it would be to share the cases when you see them on your social media. We want to amplify the voices. We want to amplify the stories. So it's really important for people to see the faces of the missing. We never know who might remember something. You know, I always say someone knows something. Could that someone be you? And I think that, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Um, We, our memories could be jarred by a photo or we could read about if something happened at a concert and we happened to have been there. Yes. Yes. So I think that's really important. And then just the other piece of it is understanding how, like, what a crisis this really is in the United States. There are, 250,000, this is an estimate, 250,000, I would say, plus cold cases in the United States. Wow. There are, um, and those numbers come from like 1980 till now. Um, I think it's really important to understand it's a huge problem. That means that, you know, I estimated one time, and this is just a very, you know, I was just trying to do it quickly, but I would say if you have one missing person, or one murdered person, you have at least 10 people affected by that. So those numbers are not just about the victim. It's the effect. Family, the community. Yes. The, yeah. And that's, a, you know, I am, I want, there's a big crime in the news where uh, in March, I'm going to go visit the town where it was and what sort of motivated me to do it was I was having a conversation with somebody who lived there and they were making the point to me, like you guys on the outside don't get it. You think about the family and you think about maybe the immediate friends, but everyone in this town is traumatized. Mm -hmm. Everyone is. Everyone's suffering. And, you know, it goes back to that, I think that idea that 
when we can relieve unnecessary suffering, that can be a powerful thing. Well, I, I learned a lot in this conversation, so you can probably tell by my, <laughs> my questions and comments, but I wanted to give you a chance to just sort of say any closing thoughts you wanted to, because I, I think one of probably the most important, one of the important things is for those of us who are in the public who can contribute in those ways that you were talking about, um, like that little detail that we may notice, you know, or our DNA, I think it's so easy for us to run away from it because these things are so sad and they're so difficult. But in a way, I sort of hear your call as like, we should, if we can, you know, relieve that unnecessary suffering and give those people's names, we should lean into it to sort of see what we we can do to help. I agree um, wholeheartedly with what you just said. And I feel as if we, as a community, as a society, we are, you know, many, many of us enjoy, and that's an awful word to say, but we enjoy watching true crime. I think that if we can, that's fine. We, because we need people to enjoy watching it so that they are exposed. And so information is then given to them. And if there is some, you know, somebody who has a tip or some information, then it can be shared. So it's not a bad thing to enjoy it, but there is a second step. And that is a call to action. If you see a case um, on a show that you're watching, you know, you can help by sharing that case. You can help by talking about that case. Mm. You can help by being an advocate for that story. I feel like the many families that I have met, they are afraid that their loved ones will fall off the internet. They are afraid that they will be forgotten. They don't know how to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I think that every single one of us who you know, is it all interested in true crime has the ability to make sure that doesn't happen. You can do simple things. Um, like I explained, just share it on your socials, talk about the case. If you're interested in helping families, there are a multitude of ways to do that. You can make donations to organizations who help with DNA testing, like season of justice. You can, you know, support, um, the crowdfunding that is done. Uh, by the DNA Doe Project. If you are interested, you can, you know, send a donation to them so that they can do the testing that needs to be done to identify the unidentified. There are so many organizations out there who are doing great work. And, you know, if you prefer not to, you know, get directly involved, but you have some, uh, you, you have uh, some extra money you can donate, that's an awesome way to help. I just, I feel like, you know, we need to come together as a community and help these families. We need to recognize them. And it's hard because it's not like it's one group of people. I mean, there's 250,000 times 10, let's say, uh, you know, just, millions, yeah. Millions, millions of people. Like right. Suffering from the, the you know, not knowing. <laughs> um, and, and so, and, you know, I, in the end, would I love for justice to be served on every single one of these cases? Yes. Do I think 
you know, is that idealistic? Yes. Um, but at the same time, I'm not giving up. And I would ask that all of you do the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that you just said there, when you were talking about the worry that the stories would fall off the internet or the people would be forgotten, that made me think about that idea that, you know, we have two deaths. The first death is when we die, and the second one is when we're forgotten. And part of what you guys are doing is trying to prevent that second death before the person gets their name. That's awesome. So I, I'm curious, just one more thing. What is next for you in the podcast? So I am currently working on a doe case out of uh, Florida. I, you know, I'm not, I don't rush my cases. I'm not as consistent as I would like to be, but it's mostly because I have to do the research. Um, I FOIA the documents, that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. I, in between uh, releasing um, this story about this man who was riding a bicycle in 1986 and was hit by a car and has mm -hmm. remained unidentified. I am doing, I'm doing something called behind the badge and it's conversations with detective John Dawes about what it's like, what his, you know, different things that happened in his career, talking about cases that he was able to solve, talking about his experiences as a cold case um, investigator and trying to present just the issues that exist today and the way we look at them, it's interesting to hear his take on, you know, what it's really like to be behind the badge. Um, and so that's what I'm, that's my future plans for the podcast. That sounds awesome. And it sounds like uh, we'll probably cross each other's paths on, on a number of these things again, because, you know, someday you'll tell Cobb County Jane Doe's story and, you know, you mentioned that part about, like, it affects so many people. Well, you know, it affected an eight-year-old kid mm -hmm. who remembered it, you know, what is that, almost, thir almost 30 years later sitting with you in a room in Atlanta. I love that. I love, I mean, I, I, you know, that inspires me that, you know, you read that as a child. I read a lot as a child too. I was, um, you know, reading the National Enquirer because my grandmother bought it and I read it every weekend. Um, but I, not the best, but it was, you know, I, it was fun. <laughs> it was good. Um, but I think that that says a lot, you know, that these cases do affect even, you know, the milk cartons affected me. That story affected you. I, I think that there's, uh, there are a lot of people who care. And uh, they don't necessarily know how to go about showing that. And I hope that this uh, discussion has brought some um, ideas or given them some hope that they can help solve these cases. And I, I mean, I think people like you sharing these messages, talking about true crime, talking about all the things that you do, and especially hope. Hope is what will, is what keeps me doing what I'm doing. The hope that we will be able to name these victims. The hope that we'll, we will be able to bring them home to their families. If you would like to join us for more discussions with us and other listeners, 
We can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can also join us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Silver Linings Handbook.